If the world can do a decent job, especially if they, we can do a good job at vaccinating developing countries, it's going to greatly reduce the likelihood that we're going to get a variant from one of the, you know, Cameroon variant or something like that, that ends up escaping the immune response from the vaccines and from previous infections. That's the Cinderella team that no one is taking seriously. It's time now for harm reduction rather than saying we can't do this. How can we do it more appropriately? Every place is different. Europe is, man, they're back in lockdown and they're having to learn kind of the hard way of they still have to keep going. But we have an opportunity to have more freedoms in terms of what we can do and socialize, but we can't go back to normal. And I think if we forget that, it's going to be dangerous. The really good take-home message is these vaccines work really well. They work really well. And if you're fully vaccinated, the risk of serious illness is virtually non-existent. And it looks like they're really good at preventing spread as well. That's going to mean that for the individual who takes the care to get vaccinated, that person does not have to worry about dying from COVID. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Park Podcast. I'm your host, John Ford, and fingers crossed you're about to listen to what might be the last March COVID-19 roundtable ever. We are moving towards the end of this pandemic. However, there are a number of complexities, policy decisions, and community-based issues still in front of us. Oddly, in some ways, this March feels a little like last March. First, we are transitioning from one public health reality to another. Second, there are enough variables up in the air to make our immediate future more uncertain. And third, there is a distinct sense that while viruses do not discriminate, systems do. Oddly enough, data collection, reporting, and analysis is becoming an issue again also. Last March, outlets like ProPublica and the COVID Tracking Project were just starting to pull together data. This March, they've announced the end of their daily data compilation. There is a lot to sort out, not the least being how to adapt vaccination strategy, and specifically how to effectively address inequity in distribution. Also, what the heck happens inside each place of business once a governor lifts all mitigation orders and simultaneously nullifies local government orders? Those topics and more are the basis of this conversation. So let's get to it. Just like March Madness is down to the Elite Eight, it's time to narrow our focus on the high seeds and Cinderella's that remain in the fight to beat back variants, avoid another surge like the one taking place in Europe, and navigate to a place of improving public health as of March 29, 2021. We are at the end of March after actually a fairly tumultuous previous week. Lots to talk about and here to do it, Mr. Will Humble from the Arizona Public Health Association. Will, how's it going? Okay, and what a week it has been. We will get to that in just a second. Dr. Kara Guerin from Valley Wise Health, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, how are you? I'm doing great, thank you. And also from Arizona State University, Dr. Joshua Libera. Josh, how's it going? Going well, always excited to be here. Not much has changed in the two weeks since we last gathered, right? Just the complete and total relaxation of restrictions in Arizona. We'll talk about it. Just when you think things are settling down into a place where there won't be big, giant things that happen, all the wheels come off. So, like, three huge things happened last week. First, and it seems like this was a month ago now, but it was just exactly a week ago that the state decided to basically anybody qualifies that's above 16 years old for a, a shot at one of the state sites because they have all the Pfizer and 18 and above for everyone else. So that, that was Monday. Midweek, 
we get all the news about the revolution in Pima County, where the Board of Supervisors is just livid that Director Christ won't allow them to get FEMA resources down there to set up some vaccination sites to work those underserved areas down in Pima County, El Rio, and there's another spot down there on the south side that they were really going to try to make some inroads with those underserved populations. The state said you can't do it. They don't like people from Maricopa County pushing them around, and they're like, wait a minute, not so fast. By the end of the week, Director Chris capitulated and is now allowing Pima County to work directly with FEMA, so they have that, and then... On Friday morning, Governor and Director Chris just get rid of all mitigation completely. (laughs) And there's more. When the state moved the qualification age down in one fell swoop, that has had a huge impact on the volunteer corps. There's just a lot fewer people that are willing to volunteer at these vaccination sites because the big incentive to go work those sites was that you didn't qualify for a shop, but you could get one at the end of the shift. And now all you have to do is to go to the Walgreens website or go to one of the state's websites when they open up the appointments and you don't have to do shifts anymore. So now they're scrambling to try to staff these vaccination sites. Maybe they can start paying. I did the math in my head. They could afford to pay people $250 a shift or something like that. And then I think you'd see people come out of the woodwork. But to work free, especially work free in the middle of the night, that's a tough nut to crack. For sure. Josh, pretty much everybody on a national level seems to have stopped even tracking case counts. Oh, it's terrible. We've been maintaining this website where we've been running numbers for the country and we can't get them anymore because everyone stopped doing it. We think we found a source but it's not easy anymore. The states just stopped counting? No, it's just that the websites that were doing all the tracking have just you know, decided that they're not going to do it anymore. So the, the numbers COVID are tracking counted. project is gone. Johns hey, Hopkins geez. doing it? Did they stop? Hopkins is still doing it to some extent, but their data are not easy to get to scrape. So it's hard for us. I think the New York Times has it, but they're always a day behind. So the number you post are two days old. I'm trying to remember where we found a spot. I think it may be CDC, but I'm not sure. The CDC director this morning, Dr. Walensky, said that cases are up 10% in the past seven days and deaths are up 3% the past week. Things are definitely ticking up in the Northeast. That's where there's a concentration, which could be due because Europe is still a hot mess. And that's where a lot of flights go from Europe into the Northeast. And that's probably how we got some of our earlier big increases there was from there. So it could be that again, or there could be something weird geographical going on because it does seem like it starts up there and it kind of waves across the country. And Arizona always seems to be whip end of that. And then when we get it, we get smarted because we get it bad. So we'll have to see if it happens again like that. What about the variants? Is that going to make any difference? We have a lot of the California variant right now in the state of Arizona. That seems to be pretty common. We are definitely seeing a rise in B117 here. It was looking like it was an exponential growth. So I think it's definitely sat down in this state. And it'll be interesting to see whether the UK variant will overcome the California variant. So it's battle royale between the United Kingdom and California. Which one's worse? (laughs) Well, there's more data on the UK variant. We don't know enough about the California variant. But the UK variant appears to be extremely transmissible. Now, there's decent evidence that it is actually more lethal as well. Battle royale between two variants, but also a horse race between infection and vaccination. That's right. So it's a lot of things going on at once. 
run down the betting sheet for us? <laughs> what are the odds we escape another surge? Our modeling team is not sure how to approach this one. It, because two variants that are battling it out, you've got vaccinations that are ongoing. And now, of course, as Bill just said, open to everybody down to 16. Plus, you've got probably some degree of community immunity due to having just come through a major surge. And so there's probably, what, 20 or 30% of people who've had it now, plus all these vaccines. So it's really hard to do the computation. We are now seeing more hesitancy come to the fore, right? Up until now, there's been this limitless supply of people who just wanted it. But now we're starting to hit that border between those people who all just want it and a bunch of people who are just not sure yet. And I think there's a bunch of people waiting for it to be convenient. Oh, that could be true too. Especially people in their 20s and 30s and 40s in the middle of their careers and stuff are like, you know, I want to get vaccinated, but I am not going to do this driving around a parking lot thing. <laughs> I want to do it like I get my influenza shot at my drugstore, which is coming. And a lot of people are getting vaccinated that way. I've heard a lot of people showing up. They don't have their appointment, but they are in the Walgreens or something, and they are picking up something else, and they say, hey, do you have any shots in the fridge right now? And they're like, yeah, we got three. Yeah, really? just ad hocking it. Yeah. Which vaccines are they getting in the? The stories I heard were Moderna. Okay. We're supposed to get a bunch of Johnson and Johnson yeah. this upcoming week, and more Pfizer and more Moderna. Both. That's good. They're all good, but certainly Johnson and Johnson would be very convenient because of the one dose thing. That would be terrific. Yeah, I look at Johnson and Johnson as kind of the global answer to this thing. One and right. done. So Kara talked about this a few weeks back, how great it would be that she could be able to administer a vaccine in the emergency room. Is that time getting close, Will? I hope so. The state health department's got some big decisions to make in the coming days because it's going to start getting hot in much of the state. These mass vaccination sites are outdoor things. They're going to have to make some decisions about how many appointments they're willing to offer at those sites and are they going to be able to do the same scale at indoor facilities and where are they going to find those? Or will they make some decisions to decentralize, which I've been advocating for for a few weeks now, which to get more into the pharmacies. And there's a lot of frustrated primary care doctors who haven't been able to get any of these vaccines and their patients are asking for it. They're going to have to make some decisions pretty soon about what their business model is. I know the mass vac sites are looking at indoor options. Right. I mean, Chandler yeah. Gilbert has already moved inside or is about to move inside. Right. State Farm is going to nights only. ASU is running State Farm and Muni, and I know those folks, and they're already scouting out all kinds of indoor options. Uh, I don't know what they've decided yet, but they're looking at them. I like the idea of decentralizing this some to get it to more points of distribution, like get more vaccines to pharmacies. But do you two agree with that? I have mixed feelings. On one hand, I totally agree with you that the more distributed you are, the more potential access and easier access there is. But the flip side of that is the more people you have doing it, the more variables come into play in terms of the distribution chain and the management chain. And whenever you have that kind of thing, it becomes more difficult to manage all of that. Now, if you have a limitless supply, that's not an issue. But when you have a limited supply, then it becomes more juggling. Like what if you send 300 doses to CVS number 723 or whatever, 
and then they don't use them all. Yeah, they yeah, just keep the them worst. around. You know, all all those things start to become management chain issues. And there's smarter people in the business community know how to do this more than I do. There seems like there has to be some sort of sweet spot where you've yeah. vaccinated it enough in the mass sites, and it's time to go to the smaller sites. I feel like supply chain issues and distribution issues aside that the local, the pharmacies and the PCPs are the way to go. Those are the people that people trust. So there's plenty of them. It seems, again, supply and distribution issues aside, it seems like that's the place to go. And then once we start addressing hesitancy, it definitely sounds like that's the place to go. You need people to trust who they're getting their information from. And those are the people that they see on a regular basis. We haven't even talked about the impact of that relative to equity. We've been on this track for a while, and the, the question remains whether we've made any progress at all towards more equitable distribution. Will, your thoughts? We used to have good numbers when the, both the numerator and denominator for who qualifies, we had that available. There is a map by zip code, but it's not age-adjusted, and so it's hard to see. There's nothing up that shows where we are with income. Somebody in my Twitter feed named Jamal James, he does a good job. I don't know if you guys follow him. He plotted it on a scatter plot by zip code, and he didn't run an R through it, correlation coefficient, but it, you could definitely see that there was still, as of last week, a noticeable difference in terms of access to the vaccine by zip code, which is a surrogate for income. And it seems like that would makes sense. We haven't really done that much to address the equitables. Yeah. And there are anecdotal things that are happening. Like U of A had a group of folks that were working in downtown Phoenix, and they have another group that's working with farm workers. So I think some of the universities, ASU's probably doing something I don't know about. There are little we do. projects yeah. going on, but not at scale. Right. We, it's a good effort, but relatively speaking, it's a drop in the bucket couple things of note from ASU side. One is we do have a plot on our COVID trends webpage that looks at number of vaccines by ethnicity per 100,000 individuals. And you can see from that plot that the two groups with the least representation are Blacks and Hispanics, especially Hispanics. And there's actually an article in the New York Times today about the trailing of Hispanics in terms of hesitancy. So that's one issue. I know that our group is working with the state to try to get out and, and create more sites around the state in areas that are underrepresented. So I don't know where that is yet. I think we should be clear about hesitancy as it's defined by the numbers. Is it hesitancy right. amongst people or is it actually access the result of lack of access? Right. Yeah. Fair enough. That's a tricky one. We can't expect anything to improve unless we do something about it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You got to do interventions if you're going to make some improvements. Right. I mean, we've proven that we haven't been equitable. So why would it be now? And especially, I think the difference between access and hesitancy, I think we're still to the access point where people, again, if you have time off during the day and access to a computer and speak English, you can get your vaccine. But if you have any of those going against you, it's still very hard. You're probably not going to find one. 
Yeah, because yeah, I will say, as an anecdotal point of view, as someone who's volunteered multiple times, and I felt like I saw a pretty broad distribution of people who wanted the vaccine amongst age, amongst ethnicity. It felt like there was a fairly broad distribution of people who were showing up at the mass vaccination sites who really, really wanted it. We have probably every day a patient in the emergency department who says, how can I get my COVID vaccine? Often it starts with, can I get my COVID vaccine here? And then followed by no. But there are almost okay. always elderly non-English speaking patients who have very limited, oftentimes health literacy, but probably very limited access to the internet and knowledge of how to navigate it. Well, it sounds like Johnson & Johnson would be a terrific vaccine for you guys to have in the ED. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that would be. Well, where is it? Where's the J&J &J vaccine? That's been really disappointing. They've clearly had some manufacturing problems or something going on. Yes, that's what they've said. Yeah, yeah, it's just I'm super disappointed in how many doses we've gotten. There was a whole bunch that first week, and that's what was in the warehouses. And they pushed it all out at once. That's what you know, HHS said, we're going to push it all out. And they did. And then it was gone. And then if you look at the distribution spreadsheet, like the state get zero, zero, zero for like the last three weeks. But this week, there's some. But it has been really disappointing, I think, the quantity of J&J &J in Arizona. If we were to hand out a Suez Canal Award for vaccines, <laughs> it would be J&J? <laughs> no, I would give that to AstraZeneca for not even putting in their application yet. What's Ugh. going on with that? I mean, Europe's I been using the AstraZeneca vaccine since Christmas. What did you think about the hype about the blood clot in AstraZeneca? It sounded... To me, it sounded like the data didn't really support it, but really AstraZeneca did a huge disservice to themselves. I think Norway did that to them. Josh, you've been following this. Yeah, I it is disappointing. I mean, people just forget that blood clots happen. And in fact, the number of blood clots that were happening uh, amongst people who received vaccinations was below the expected rate that you see in the population at large. It was in the tens of cases, and there are 100,000 blood clots per month in Europe. So it is crazy. I think Kara's is right, though. In other ways, AstraZeneca has not done themselves service when they provided old data to the FDA instead of yeah. just keeping it up to date. That doesn't help them. When they did their clinical trials, they were doing different doses in different locations. They've done a lot of missteps along the way here. Not necessarily bad science or intentionally, but, but they've really not thought things through as well as they could have. I think you're right. Reading between the lines, it looks to me like there's a level of distrust between the FDA and Oxford slash AstraZeneca just by reading the kind of statements that come out. No doubt about it. So are you saying it's political or it's science-based? No, no, I think it's science-based. But Yeah, it is. But science and trust are interlinked. The level of trust that you have with the researcher gives you a certain level of comfort that what they're giving you is what is the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Yeah, it changes the context. Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, you got to imagine that this is a high stakes game, this vaccine thing. And pretty much every company has to have their top notch people and a lot of funding behind every little thing they do related to vaccine. And to put out data that's old or to have left out data that's recent, that's just a kind of misstep that you should not be happening in this circumstance. Josh, I'm taken by what you said earlier about the modelers at ASU don't quite know what to do with all the different variables at this point based on how things have been shaken up and the amount of data record that is extant 
for those different variables. I don't want to do them any disservice. They are all brilliant. I think it's just the complexity of the circumstance makes it difficult to develop a model because there are so many things going on at once. Yeah. Oh, think, it's completely yeah. understandable. I think what's interesting about that is we've been in a world of relative bandwidth of knowns for yeah. months, and now we're not. It sounds right. like there are more unknowns than there are knowns. And when you're doing modeling, you have to make assumptions for those variables. And the ranges that you pick for those assumptions are mean everything to the results. More assumptions you have to make because there's more variables and there's not track record because things have changed so much with the vaccine. And with changes in policy and, you know. Yeah, yeah. And policy change. Huge oh policy God. changes. Yeah. So many things going at once. So rather than think about bottles for a second, let's talk again to the emergency room doctor and say, what do you see on the ground, Kara? We are not seeing a lot of COVID. We're seeing a lot more viral illnesses that are COVID-like, but a lot of people come back COVID negative, which is surprising, but also means that people are out and about getting whatever illnesses from each other. Right. It's not COVID, but that still means that there's lots of other stuff out there. And there wasn't for the past 11, 12 months. So what um, about seeing... influenza two weeks ago when we talked that you hadn't seen it? I don't think a single case. No, I still haven't. But there's plenty of other stuff, the regular stuff that we don't type out, right. that we don't know what it is. I've seen a good increase in that, especially in young, healthy people in their 20s and 30s. And they're like, I've got a cold or a pneumonia and they're worried it's COVID and it's not. But we're also seeing an increase in kids getting various assorted infections because they're out and about and kind of doing yeah. their regular things. Drive through downtown Gilbert on a weekend evening or go down to downtown Scottsdale. But there's just droves of people walking around and not as much mask wearing as you might hope for. Our resident physicians, who many of them are in their 20s, live near downtown Scottsdale and they drive by at night and the clubs are full. People are close to each other and no one's wearing a mask. I heard a story that someone was trying to make a reservation at a restaurant and they couldn't find one because either the restaurants were all closed or packed. Right. Yeah, which right. is terrifying. The governor's announcement has really thrown people for a loop too. The, the folks who were just ready for the end of mask wearing. I mean, I've, I've sat in a parking lot, not, not on purpose, but just I'm sitting there in my car and I watch the number of people who walk towards the store with nothing, no mask, only to be turned around have to go back to their car and find one and be really angry in the process. Where are we going to find the correct practices if it's not coming from a state level, Will? It's going to be on and has been on individual business owners. But they have been, up until now, the ones that have wanted to do the right thing could blame it on the County Board of Supervisors or some other entity and say, well, we're requiring masks and we're doing the distancing thing because we have to. And we're just, now they don't, now they can't say that anymore. So the businesses that do want to do the right thing have to decide if it's really worth it now. Mayors have not said that that's okay. Doesn't the governor's rule uh, yeah, supervene them now, right? Yeah. The, it, if you read the executive it order, it rolls the clock back a year and it says whatever you had on the books before the pandemic, you can keep on the books. Well, of course, nobody had any kind of interventions before the pandemic in place. So they're all preempted now. And the governor called it a phase out. It's not a phase out. It's over. Out. Yeah, it's over. Now, I want to push back a little on the gloom and doom, I've heard gloom and doomers out there saying, well, now that the governor's removed all the mitigation in the bars, restaurants, nightclubs, and all that kind of stuff, let's think about this for a minute. What's actually really changed in the field? Let's take that subset of places 
where the virus loves to thrive. Bars, restaurants, and nightclubs, places with closed indoor environments that serve alcohol where people come and stay for like three or four hours. In reality, does it look any different this week than last week in those places on weekends from Thursday to Sunday? I don't think really there was no enforcement to begin with. So that's right. You have to look at it and say in the real world, not on paper, in the real world, how different is it really in those specific types of environments? Yeah, it's going to be different in like Target or department stores and things like that. You'll see fewer masks, but those are not indoor closed environments with alcohol where people come and stay for four hours. So right, they're right. lower risk environments, churches and things like that. Those are lower risk places than bars, restaurants and nightclubs. And they've been getting away with no mitigation since August. I also think that speaks to kind of the disconnect between officials and public health, kind of like we've been feeling the whole time. But public health officials say, relax, it's OK. And public health people say, no, this isn't over, you still need to do your due diligence. And I think this also comes down to individual responsibility. You have control over what you do yourself, but you don't know how other people are going to respond and be responsible. What really struck me was on NPR had a story when Texas got rid of their mitigation plan and the restaurant owner said, before I could blame it on the government telling me I had to do this, but now I have to make a decision whether I'm going to enforce this or not. And they lose customers because they choose to do one thing or another. They choose to have mitigation efforts. People get upset and they choose not to have mitigation efforts. Yeah. People get upset. I just, so I, right. I just wish that the governor and director, Christ would have waited another four to six weeks. Yeah. If they had just waited another four to six weeks, we could have vaccinated another few hundred thousand people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. And what's the hurry? I'm not a business person, but I kind of feel like restaurants that have not survived have not survived. The restaurants that are surviving are kind of just doing what they can. Carrie, you're still looking at people who are being intubated, who are going into ICU, who are passing away due to COVID. This is not over. No, it's not over. Our hospital particularly has not had a ton recently. We we still get the numbers every day, but it is not over. There are still people that are very, very sick with it. It's still there. It is March Madness, but we're down to the Elite Eight. Now that includes some originally high-seeded teams and some originally low-seeded teams. Think about COVID right now. Tell me who's your number one and who's your Cinderella that determines the next three to six months. Which one do you think is the dominant number one seed, the one that we've all been looking at that's still important to look at? And which one is the one that that is unheralded that now sits in front of us that we need to pay attention to? I got my Cinderella. Okay. And that's vaccination in the developing world. That is completely overlooked thing in the U.S. Try to find a story anywhere in the national media about or locally about what's happening internationally. You have to go to the WHO, Gavi, and CEPI websites to find anything out about the international vaccination efforts. And that will have a profound impact on what happens to us over the next 18 months. If the world can do a decent job, especially if they, we can do a good job at vaccinating developing countries, 
it's going to greatly reduce the likelihood that we're going to get a variant from one of the, you know, Cameroon variant or something like that, that ends up escaping the immune response from the vaccines and from previous infections. That's the Cinderella team that no one is taking seriously. In many ways, it relates to the number one seed. In many ways, the number one seed is the variants. That's the hard part to predict, but you've got this UK variant that's just extremely transmissible and is already becoming dominant in various parts of the US, particularly after these superseder events like in spring break in Florida. And the variants are going to come from places like the developing world where you have high viral numbers because high viral numbers is what breeds new variants. And to date, vaccination has been protective of the variants, correct? Yes. Yeah. But there's probably just a matter of time before it's not. And it might, and I don't think it would happen in one fell swoop. We're not going to get probably a variant that's like a total wild card thing that escapes all the immune response, but we get a variant that is the spike protein's different enough that there's really kind of a marginal protection from previous infections and previous vaccinations. Kara, how about you? Do you have a different Cinderella, different number one? I do. Uh, No, I think number one is probably vaccination. I think that probably takes the cake. My Cinderella, I think, would be mitigation efforts, though, or however we want to put it, because people are tired. And before instructions were clear, it was very kind of black and white, socially distanced, don't gather in groups. Now it's getting to a little more gray. So if you're vaccinated and the other person's vaccinated, you can be indoors without a mask. And people are just antsy. So I think... It's time now for harm reduction. You know, we're really good with understanding harm reduction and HIV and opiates, but how can you socialize and how can you have concerts in a COVID appropriate way? So rather than saying we can't do this, how can we do it more appropriately? Getting rid of all mask mandates and going to 100% restaurant capacity is not the way to do it. There has to be a happy medium. And I think that every place is different. Europe is, man, they're back in lockdown and they're having to learn kind of the hard way of they still have to keep going. But we have an opportunity to have more freedoms in terms of what we can do and socialize, but we can't go back to normal. And I think if we forget that, that's it's going to be dangerous. I love what you just said that I really I agree with that. Going back to Europe for a second, they kind of really blew it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like they didn't get their vaccination effort in place in time to beat the variants. And now they're suffering badly. France, Macron's not doing a lockdown, at least in France they're not. And the hospitals, they're approaching contingency standards there. And it's because they didn't get their act together in time. People are angry. A lot of my family lives in Europe and they are angry. They're very frustrated that the vaccination program was so slow to roll out and ineffective. And now here they are again. Yeah, they just didn't get it done in time. I hear that from scientific colleagues in Europe. Same deal. They're like, we're we're just getting started here. Yeah, and it's like they're three months behind. And in those three months, all these variants took off. And now they're screwed. Will, you named a Cinderella, but not a number one. Josh, you named number one, but not a Cinderella. Or is that because the two of you have agreed to agree again? (laughs) Number one's got to be vaccines. I'll stick with variants for number one, but I'm going to go for a different, I I liked Will's Cinderella, but I'm going to go for a different Cinderella. And I'm going to say hesitancy, vaccine hesitancy. I think right now we don't see it so much because we still have plenty of people who want it, but I think it pokes its head out every once in a while. For example, when they decided to go in Arizona, it was partly because during that weekend, there were a lot of empty slots for vaccination. And I am still struck by the fact that 
when we transitioned from the 1A group, about half of the healthcare workers were not getting vaccinated. And that's, that shocks me. These are frontline healthcare's who take care of people and were not getting the vaccine, even though it was available to them. And that's not just Arizona. That's also been true in California and other places. These are theoretically enlightened people. Why are they not getting vaccinated? So I am a little worried about the hesitancy thing still. It boggles my mind. I just cannot. And I speak with people regularly who have chosen not to get vaccinated. And I still don't understand all the regular kind of reasons. I don't know about the vaccine. I think I'm healthy, but you're right. If we can't even convince the people that see this day in and day out to get the vaccine, how are we going to convince everybody else? And I think that there are probably some things that are going to fall into place. You know, people have said, well, as I see other people get it and it's safe, I'll get it. And the spelling, the myths about it, vaccines, the vaccine causing infertility and all these kind of other things. But man, it is going to be a tough, tough road because just the same way that pediatricians have been and other public health care people have been fighting pediatric routine vaccinations. If this is your held belief, what's going to change it? And oftentimes the answer is nothing. So mm. it's kind of, man, yeah, it, it takes me back to at the kind of at the beginning of this, of the pandemic. I treated a patient who was Spanish speaking and I said, you know, I think you have COVID. There's no treatment. The treatment is, there's no medicine to fix this. The treatment is supportive. And, you know, she kind of said, okay, I understand. And the nurse went to go discharge her and she started yelling and, you know, was in the hall. So everyone could hear her about, you're not giving me the treatment for COVID because I'm a minority doing this on purpose and I'm going to die because of it. It didn't matter what I said. It didn't matter what anyone else said. This was her held belief and that was it. Oh. That's a stunning story. But on the other hand, I guess this also brings up the irony, I suppose, of the major argument about any type of mitigation that we've had, any type of restriction, was that people want their freedom. And the vaccine actually provides that freedom. It provides that freedom from fear. It provides that freedom from the threat of death. It provides that freedom from the threat of hospitalization and serious illness. So is it just that people just have their blind spots? To a degree, I'm sure behavioral scientists can address this better than I could, but held beliefs are very difficult to change. And if you, I think it's deeper than that. If you never believed COVID was as big of a problem as it is, why do you need it? Right. If all this hoopla about COVID was overblown and political, why are you going to need it? Or I think part of it is also as COVID gets less common and less deadly, people are also going to say, well, I don't need it. Kind of the way they do with influenza. Oh, I'll be fine if I get it. And it's really not that common. I wonder if we're going to have to think about things like they have in Israel, where you have to have, they call it a green card, which basically says you've been vaccinated and you can't get into a museum. You can't get into a public building without a green card saying you've been vaccinated. And people might reconsider if they knew there was a benefit that came to them from having gotten vaccinated. 
as we speak, we have private companies, we have the federal government, and as I understand it, some state agencies that are working on apps that you can carry on your phone that can validate that you are vaccinated and therefore you have a vaccination passport. Is there some ethical, moral, technical issue with a government doing that? I can absolutely see that for a private company, you know, especially a cruise or a concert or something, but is there issues with requiring a public entity doing that? Here's the way we've set everything up in our countries. There's a diff- There's rights and then there's privileges. So riding on an airplane is a privilege because you have certain things that you agree to before you get on the airplane that you're not going to carry a weapon, that you're going to behave in a certain way. Da, 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 da. If you're going to drive a car, there's certain things that you have to agree to because driving a car is a privilege. And so for things that are privileges, then we could have policies in place that require you to be vaccinated in order to do that. But it, it's up to the entity in control. So where are our leverage points? TSA is a big leverage point because planes are a privilege to be on and TSA right. could make a, a decision in the end, like they do with masks, like you have to keep your mask on and certain ways you're supposed to behave on planes because the FAA and TSA have authority over that. So where there is authority and where it is a privilege and not a right, then you could implement things. But when things are a right, then that's not. But it'll never happen. Your analogy to planes reminds me of, of you know, the old smoking zones. And you could imagine, you know, green card zones in restaurants, for example. Can you, you know, you can sit in the vaccination part of the restaurant or you can sit in the non-vax. <laughs> yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. And kind of similarly, you could sit in the non-smoking section right next to the smoking section and it didn't <laughs> right. do you any good. Right, right, right. right. That always fascinated me about like the smoking section of an airplane. Oh what my God. The, I, yeah, I remember those days. Josh, the universities did a remarkable job. Last fall, people were really concerned that students were coming back on campus and the least responsible people in the room would be the students themselves Mm. and that universities would suffer horrible outbreaks. None of those things came to pass. No, no. In fact, our numbers were well below the community numbers throughout both of the major surges, I think. so. And so what would you say is the lesson learned from that? I think to me, the lesson learned was that uh, controlling the virus responds well to organized situations, basically that if, if a controlled situation where you monitor people by, by random testing, where you have in place structured situations, where you can put some structure on how to manage the situation. And I don't think it's just the universities. I think if you look uh, overall, I think even the senior living situations in the, in, in the state did okay because most of them put in place a structure that you know maintained spacing. And even the schools is a good example of that, the K through 12 schools. By and large, transmission at school did not happen a lot. Most kids who got it, got it from home, not from the school. And I think all of those structured situations manage it well. I think you have leverage when in those managed situations, like you have leverage to compel the right kind of behavior. That's right, and that, and that worked. Take the university situation. You know what I think was a key to that is you had the ability to have a student code of conduct so that if you attended ASU, U of A, NAU, you signed a code of conduct that you would do certain things. And because you attested to that, the university had the ability to, if you had shown that you were not willing to abide by the code of conduct that you agreed to, that there was certain privilege that, that could be lost. For example, could lose your access card and they'd turn you off and you can't get in the building. I don't know how often that happened, but it was an intervention that they could 
use. They could take your email away. You know, you could forfeit your tuition. So those are privileges that the university had the ability to revoke, not rights. So you had leverage where you weren't jeopardizing civil liberties because you were working with privileges. Most of the time, it did not come down to threats. What it came down to was just providing structure. Here's how we're going to do things. You're going to get an email and, and you have two days to go get tested. You know, we basically had a, a bunch of different things like that. And I think people just got used to that routine and it kept the numbers really low. The really good take home message is these vaccines work really well. They work really well. And if you're fully vaccinated, the risk of serious illness is virtually non-existent. And it looks like they're really good at preventing spread as well. That's going to mean that for the individual who takes the care to get vaccinated, that person does not have to worry about dying from COVID. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Josh. And thank you, Kara. We are without doubt in another moment of transition. The big developments of last week are still being processed and their effects are just starting to ripple out. Today, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky documented a 10% week-over-week increase in cases nationwide. If, as Josh noted, things play out like they have previously, that increase could come to Arizona soon. Meanwhile, the opening of vaccination eligibility to Arizona's ages 16 and up has resulted in much tighter appointment inventory, longer lines at state-run sites, and a new dearth of volunteers for those sites. Policy decisions have implications intended and unintended, foreseeable and unforeseeable. No matter what end of the spectrum of belief and understanding you occupy regarding this pandemic, there's one thing we all still need, patience. Experts are pleading with us to stick with mitigation efforts long enough for vaccination rollout to override COVID's potential for mutation, spread, severe illness and death. And as Will noted, we need international vaccination success too. Just like March of last year, how we act matters. Patience may be the hardest thing to summon at this point. If you're one of those people, remember that Dr. Kara Guerin still bears witness each workday to severe COVID illness and death. Step into her shoes before stepping out of your home and summon the patience and behaviors that will help save lives. The Vitalist Spark will be back again soon. In the meantime, our back catalog of episodes awaits your ears. There's a lot to listen to, including guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify or simply reach into that podcast app you are using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for now. The insights, reflections, and takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in business settings, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.